You're listening to TIP. Yeah, huge change, huge change. It's almost I mean, cut in half. Compared to what they're... Yeah, I mean, at that, I mean, you look at lumber prices and uh, things are getting better for sure. Like we're having tradespeople calling us compared to the other way around. Like work is getting scarcer with the custom home building. So that, that that's why it's found, become easier to find people in the last like three, four months. Ever since June, ever since the interest rate started going up, it started to become easier. But when it comes to interest rates, I mean, you can't stop that, right? In this week's episode, I interviewed Alex Jarbo, a short-term rental developer with the goal of building 650 cabins within the next three years. We talk all about his short-term rental business, how to develop short-term rentals from scratch, and how to find areas or land that is good for short-term development. Alex is the founder and CEO of Sargon Investments and obtained an MBA with a concentration in real estate development. He's also a former Marine and currently working on his doctorate in business with a focus on leadership. There are a lot of podcasts out there about short-term rentals, buying an existing structure, renting it out as a short-term rental property, an Airbnb, but I haven't seen a lot talk about ground-up development for short-term rentals. So I found this episode pretty interesting. I hope you guys enjoy it too. Let's get right into this week's episode with Alex Jarbo. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I am your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Alex Jarbo. Alex, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me on, man. The first thing I want to talk about today is your secondary education. One of the things a lot of people like about real estate is that they don't need a college degree in order to be successful. You already have an MBA with a concentration in real estate development, and now you're finishing up your doctorate. What has made you want to pursue this much secondary education while being in real estate? I originally was in the Marine Corps and I finished most of my bachelor's when I was in the Marine Corps. And I had a lot of free time on my hands when I first got out of the military. And that's probably why I pursued the MBA in real estate development. Looking back at it now, and it's exactly what you said, I learned more from books that I purchased off Amazon that I, that I learned in, that, in the MBA at least. The doctorate in leadership and business is a little different because my only form of experience and leadership I had ever gotten was through the military. There are things that correlate between military leadership and civilian leadership, but there are a lot of differences as well. So that's why I'm pursuing the doctorate. And I just, I enjoy writing. So that, that, that's one of the reasons why I'm in the dissertation portion right now. So that's all writing at this point. When I studied finance and investing in school, it ended up being nothing really like what finance was in the real world or any of the corporate jobs that I had. My school might be an anomaly here, but like I studied finance and investing. We didn't even have a single course on Excel. And when I got into the corporate world, all I did was live in Excel for 12 hours a day. Like that was all I did. So I was a little bit surprised. One of the things was also like I had professors that had never invested in real estate before. Like that happened once. And that's sort of where I was like, oh, okay, that's a little weird. Like this is just cast classroom, just general stuff at this point. Yeah, I had a professor like that too in, in uh, entrepreneurship. He had never started a business. And I was like, I mean, it's all great in theory. You know, when I think about that stuff, what I think of is Mike Tyson. 
And the reason I think of Mike Tyson is because Mike Tyson has that quote, everybody has a plan to get punched in the mouth. And that's how, that's the difference between theory in school and what happens in the real world. You could talk about theory, business, and what they teach in school for entrepreneurship, real estate, all that's great. But when you get out out in the real world, you're going to get punched in the mouth and it's a little bit different. You got to figure out that stuff. So, but anyway, what did you learn? Refer to a book. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What did you learn in that real estate development program that actually did help you and translate to your real estate business? Was there anything there? It's going to sound a little weird, but I learned the power of... So when I when I first started in real estate development, outside of like getting your general contractor license, there weren't really, really too many materials out there on what I was working on. What I learned in the MBA with the real estate development was the power of like textbooks, actually reading school textbooks. Outside of school, like outside of my degrees and everything, I've picked up a lot of textbooks. I, didn't ha- I don't have to go do the degree on whatever I'm interested in. You can just go purchase a textbook and read that. So that like some real estate development textbooks that I've picked up have been super helpful. And like I said, just the power of actually reading a textbook, but you don't have to be in a degree path to get obtain a certain textbook. Like when we started doing like micro resort development, I picked up like resort development textbooks where it's like the books behind me, like those are just small books that you can get on Amazon. None of those are going to teach you how to like really develop a resort. That's one of the things I learned is like you can, there's an immense amount of information out there in like textbooks that isn't theory that might not be in the degree path that you're in, but you can just get a hold of those textbooks. When you left the Marine Corps, you did so to pursue this career in real estate. What did that look like? Were you able to go full time in real estate right away or did you get a corporate job to kind of pay the bills while you built your real estate business? For anyone who's a veteran, so I was going to school online full time and then the GI bill pays a portion of your living expenses while you're doing that. I also had some money saved up about maybe six to eight months of expenses that was saved up. And then I immediately got my real estate license when I moved here. So I started working on a team immediately when I got here. That's how I was making money initially was I had some reserves. I had some money coming in from the GI bill. And then I was essentially relying on like commission checks, which was, it took about what, like six months to get my first one. but. Yeah. Are you still an agent to this day? I am an agent to this day, but I have an agent that's way better than me. I use her. How long were you an agent for? When did you decide to stop selling? Two years, I would say. Yeah, two years. I did it partially full time until I really got into the development piece. That was about a year into my license, a year, year and a half into my license where I picked up my my very first real estate investment was a ground up development short term rental. About, I would say a year and a half, year, year and a half until I stepped away from it. Why wasn't being a full-time real estate agent the career path for you? Why wasn't that where you wanted to, to build? I moved to Asheville, North Carolina, where I currently live. I moved, lived in DC where I was stationed out originally from Detroit. But what I realized was I moved here for those short-term rentals, for real estate investing in short-term rentals. What I realized was real estate agents, even the top ones, a lot of them don't even own their own property. It's the same thing what we were just talking about with professors teaching on a topic that you don't know any, like that you haven't experienced in the real world. So it was very interesting to me that like, I mean, some, some agents obviously did, but uh, like a majority of them that were doing it full time for extended, like a year or two had no real estate. Like that was the reason I got my license was to purchase my first property as a real, and also just to learn the intricacies of a contract and stuff. But yeah, it was, it was, that was really interesting. That's the reason why I stepped away from that was I was trying to build just, I'm not going to say passive income, but like residual income that was coming in 
on like a monthly basis or even a weekly basis without me having to put in the work essentially of trying to get a deal every single month or like just listings and stuff. Why did you choose short-term rentals as your strategy? Why not go with the traditional long-term rentals? And then even kind of more niche or more specifically, why'd you start developing cabins and doing development rather than just buying a property that already existed for short-term rentals? I had originally, while I was still in the Marine Corps, I originally joined a flipping mentorship. And we were on a group coaching call and the person who ran the mentorship was on that group coaching call. And he had mentioned that all of his long-term wealth was tied into short-term rentals. This is back in like 2015 and 16. And so I got him on like a one-on-one call and I was like, if you wouldn't mind, like, I I would like to know, like, what are the numbers compared to like long-term rentals? So when I was in the military, I was aggressively reading like real estate books and he showed me like, here's my cabin in Gatlinburg or wherever. And it's, it's making like cash flowing four to six grand a month after debt service and everything compared to if it was a long-term rental, it would make this much. So the cash flows are what really caught my eye. And then when I, what I, why I really got into real estate development was because when I first, as an agent, when I was first starting to look for a property for myself, I couldn't find anything that was in my price range. Or if it was in my price range at that time, it was, it, it wouldn't have done well as a short-term rental. It probably as a long-term rental, if you put a long-term tenant in there, it would have done well, but there was nothing unique about the property. It just came out of necessity to build my first short-term rental. My first short-term rental was like an 800 square foot A-frame that we own to this day. But yeah, it just came out of necessity. Like everything, I'm, I'm a firm believer in developing unique properties. I, I like to say Instagrammable properties where the property is itself is an experience outside of the city that the guest is visiting. How are you building these cabins? Are you buying a raw piece of land and then you're hiring a developer to build it? Or are you buying land with existing structures and then kind of building off of that? Like, what does that look like? So it's a little bit of both. So prior to COVID, that's what we were doing was raw land. So raw land, and we're still doing that to this day. But once COVID happened and all the supply chain issues happened, what we did was we purchased already built properties with some partners so we could purchase these larger properties that had some acreage attached to them, whether it be like two to 10 acres with the cabin, with the A-frame, with the cottage or whatever, where we can cash flow and break even on the property while we were developing, while we were doing the future development. So now we're finally moving into the development piece. We're developing $10 million worth of real estate as we're speaking right now, and we're hoping to triple that next year. But yeah, I, we purchase raw land. Ideally, we like to purchase raw land and I'm the developer and then I just hire a GC to handle most of the work. I handle all the design. So I handle what the properties are going to look like. Right now, at this point in my business, what I've realized is the best use of my time is to d- be developing these like six to 12 like cabin cluster developments, like micro resorts, what I originally mentioned earlier. That's what I realized with the best use of my time is doing stuff like at a bigger scale like that. But yeah, it's raw land mainly. But uh, I'm also open to acquisition if there's some land tied to the deal where we can develop more cabins down the road. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. 
Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Take us through kind of your process when you're building a cabin. Say you buy a piece of raw land what comes next and what comes after that, so on and so forth. Kind of take us from the beginning to when you get your first short-term rental tenant in there. We can even start before land acquisition because that's probably one of the most important things to think about. When you're acquiring your land, even before that, I do things a little bit backwards. I like to have my floor plan or an idea of what type of property I want to build prior to even looking at the land. So a lot of times it's like cabins, A-frames, whatever. I have an idea of what the cabin's going to look like. I I might even have the preliminary floor plans done without the foundation plans, and then I go look at the land. So the next step is looking at the land. I'm a firm believer that your guest shouldn't be driving 30 minutes up a gravel road to get to your property. A lot of times your guest is... You got to think of the entire guest experience. So what does that mean? That, that doesn't just mean the property itself. It also means the drive to and from the property. So a lot of times your guest is going to be driving in at night. A lot of times your guest is going to be new to the area. Sometimes they might lose cell phone reception. You don't want your guest to be scared or annoyed by the time they even get to your property. So access to your land is super important. I like to be off of some sort of state maintained or some sort of paved road by the time we get to my land, essentially. I'm not against like going through neighborhoods and stuff because we have properties that are like that. But then it's a paved road that leads on to our property. And we'll put in gravel roads anywhere between like a couple hundred feet all the way up to like a thousand feet. But beyond that, that's going to be the second step is you're finding your floor plans and then you're finding a piece of land with the help of a land real estate agent that specifically deals in land to help you find the land and access is number one. 
From there, you can put together the financing. There's many different financing options that exist as we're recording this. When I first started, there was almost nothing like six years ago. You're putting together the financing. A lot of times, they're debt service coverage ratio loans compared to debt to income ratio loans, which are easier to get. And then a lot of these lenders will go off of like projected income on the property. And then from there, it's just, I mean, it falls on the GC, but it's anywhere from start to finish, like from identifying the land to turnkey, you're ready for a guest is anywhere between nine to 14 months, depending on how big the project is. How did you fund that first development that you did? Did you have partners? Did you just kind of save up? And what did that down payment look like on a DSCR loan? Was it 20, 25%, 30%? What does that look like? So when I first started, there was net, no debt service coverage ratio loans on uh, the short-term rentals, at least what I couldn't find. I ended up getting a second home construction loan, which you can still get to this day. It was only 10% down. Right now, I think it's like 20% down. I think that 10% had gone away recently. But yeah, it was 10% down. All in all, like I can just give the whole number. That first A-frame, we purchased two acres and turnkey 830 square foot A-frame. It was 250 grand with the land, building, and furnishing. It was about 30 to 35 grand in my own pocket. Eh, take that back. 35, 40 grand out of my own pocket. So say 40 grand to be conservative. And that property last year grossed 82,000 in revenue and it netted 46,000 after debt service. So after my mortgage payments and all my expenses. So my ROI on that property has been close to like over a hundred percent. Granted, that's prior to COVID. Now I would discount those numbers by like 30%, maybe add 30% to the budget. But you're still looking at like a 70 to 80% ROI on your money every single year. How are those financing terms on the DSCR loans that you've done over the last couple of years? How are those changing given the interest rate environment, everything that we're experiencing right now? Yeah. Surprisingly, a lot of people are actually like I just spoke to an investor. So usually they're 20 to 25 year AMs. I've heard of 30 year amortizations as well. But it, I mean, it's pretty normal. You can get SBA 7A loans on these types of developments as well, which I recently discovered the last couple months. Those are anywhere between 10, you can get 10% down. It's a little difficult. You, you got to have a really strong financial backing, but anywhere between 10 to 25% down. And then a lot of, I, I just spoke to an investor that was comfortable doing an adjustable rate loan currently through the, just the, what the lending environment looks like right now. He didn't be, he didn't want to be fixed in a, in a rate because they might go up like in, in the next couple months, but they are expected to go down sometime next year. Right now, we're playing around with adjustable rate mortgages, which I've never done before. But I understand the reason for it because th- those adjustable rate mortgages got like a bad rap during co- uh, during the 2008-2009 crash. But it makes sense the way we're sort of implementing them right now. All my loans outside of that, the debt service coverage ratio loans are fixed rate mortgages, 20-25 year AMs. What are repairs and maintenance like on a cabin? Is it pretty standard like a normal house or is it different? So the biggest difference, I would say, if you have a hot tub, that's going to be your number one thing that goes wrong. <laughs> With the new development stuff, I mean, stuff outside of... Chain, we, they're on well and septic, all of our properties, a little bit more rural. But most of our properties are not... Um, there's barely any maintenance the first six months to a year because they're brand new. When it comes to the properties that we're purchasing, we do some light rehab work prior to renting them out. But I have a maintenance person that's on a retainer. I don't, I don't like to hire full-time anything. Most of my stuff is subbed out, even my cleaning company. I have a maintenance person that's on retainer and then I essentially, they get called if anything goes wrong and then they're paid hourly from there. But yeah, I mean, there's no, all these properties are permanent foundation stick built houses. So there isn't really much difference in terms of maintenance compared to a normal house. Totally understand where you're coming from in terms of like new development, not having a lot of issues in the beginning. 
well, what about tenants just like trashing the place? I mean, I know that's not always common, but like it happens, it, especially with short-term rentals. So how do you deal with that? We've been renting out for five years now. And I think it's the way, it's the price point that we're at. Like these unique properties rent for higher, anywhere between two to 600 a night. And I think because of that higher price point, we don't get some of those crappier guests. We've never had major issues with our properties and we allow pets at our properties as well. So we've never had these like crazy knock on wood. I've never had to deal with like a guest punching a massive hole through a wall or we've had one time where like a tree fell on our deck and we had to get the deck replaced. But in terms of that just falls on making sure that you have the systems in place that you're screening the guests prior to them even booking. Airbnb has their own screening procedures that we we lean pretty heavily on if they're booking through Airbnb. But outside of that, it's I think the, t- the type of properties that we develop at that higher price range sort of push away some of those crappier guests. So I rent an RV and it's kind of like my short-term rental. It's like my version of a short-term rental. And people always ask me that. They're like, aren't you worried about people trashing the RV? And, and at first I was like really worried about it. But then after I started my first three, four, five rentals, I learned and I came to the exact same conclusion that you did is this RV is $250 a night. And most people are going 7, 10, 14 day trips. So I mean, that's not cheap. And that's just the rental rate. Plus they have to pay insurance on top of that and some other fees. It's not a it's not a cheap thing. And so from my experience, a lot of the people that are able to afford this and, and go on like little trips like this are not the type of people that are going to trash your place. And knock on wood, that's been my experience so far. And it's like one of those things where like we have a property that sleeps 14 people, but the average daily rate on that's anywhere between five to $700 a night. And we'll, we've had 14 people at that property. You're technically throwing a party with 14 people, but it's not like, it's not like a massive party. It's like they're, they're, very, they're very respectful. And a lot of times when you hear these like, oh, my Airbnb got trashed or my Airbnb, like something happened at my Airbnb, those are usually like the anomalies in the baseline where it's like, those are the horror stories that you hear about compared to the tens of thousands of guests that are being hosted every single day. How do you decide where you're going to buy and, and build these cabins? And how are you thinking about the different locations? I love developing in mountain communities or mountain markets, not communities, markets. And the reason being is mountain markets tend to be a little bit less seasonal than say like beach or lake markets. And what I like to say is like our high season here is summer and it's fall. Fall is the highest season, but summer does really well as well. Outside of that, when you're looking at like December to maybe the middle of February, late February, that's sort of the slow season. But nothing gets more iconic than like a cabin in the woods with a hot tub with a mountain view in the winter, right? That's like the picturesque scene. These type of properties that we're developing are a little bit less seasonal because of that. When I see creative real estate projects like this online for Airbnb properties specifically, whether it's Instagram or whatever, I almost always wonder about the resale value of them compared to more traditional forms of real estate. How do you think about that and the potential sale of these properties in the future? Usually the question I get asked is like, why did you decide to build an A-frame? How did you know that was going to do well? I didn't know it was going to do well. My backup plan was to underwrite it as a long-term rental. And if it was going to do terrible as a short-term rental, I was going to rent it out as a long-term rental. Right now, after COVID, with how construction prices are still pretty high, they're not at the height at what they were, but they're still pretty high. You can sometimes make it work as a long-term rental, but sometimes the numbers wouldn't work out. And the backup plan is just selling the property. The square footage numbers we're developing right now, outside of that 14-person cabin I mentioned, that was a purchase. We're developing anywhere between 500 square foot to 1,600 square foot. 
I'm very confident that there will always be a market for that price point of 500 to 1600 square foot. I consider that the affordable housing price range. When it comes to resale value, I think I see like a small family or a couple living in the properties if we ever do decide to sell them. And that's if we sell them off as just normal single family houses. The resale value, if we sold it off as a business, is going to be way higher because there's a lot of there's built in income. That's I mean, the the first property has been making money for the last four or five years. How much of your business is reliant on third party platforms like Airbnb and VRBO versus like direct listings? We still rely really heavily on Airbnb and VRBO to bring us the guests. But what's changed in the last six months is that I like to tell students that I coach that you don't want to look at you want to look at Airbnb and VRBO as just the marketing arm to your business. You do not want your business or your property to live exclusively on any platform because something could happen to that platform. The algorithm can change. I know it's happened with other people's businesses with Google, YouTube, Instagram, whatever. And then it recently happened with Airbnb in the summer. Airbnb completely redid their algorithm and their platform to sort of accommodate. Luckily, it helped us to accommodate for these unique properties that we're developing. But a lot of people got crushed because of that, that didn't have anything unique in their properties. What I say to that is what we usually do, we get the guests from Airbnb and VRBO. And then we use a service called StayFi. And what StayFi is, it's a little disk that plugs into the back of your router, your internet router, and it creates a landing page for your internet. So the guest has to essentially put their contact info, their email address, their first and last name to be able to get access to the internet. With the person who usually books the property, you already get that. But say if your property sleeps 14 people, you're not getting those other people's contact info if you're just relying on the booking side. With this, we're getting all everyone's contact info. And then we're, we're remarketing to them with seasonal emails, pushing them towards our website to rebook either with the property they currently stayed out or whatever our other properties are. So that's how we've gotten them off the platform. And I write for Bigger Pockets for their short-term rental blog. And I had written about this exact topic we're talking about, about using StayFi and the email capture thing. And people like gave some kickback to that. They said that's illegal. But everything that I had read on Airbnb's terms of service, there's nothing against taking the guest off of the platform after they've stayed with you. It's if you're trying to get them off the platform when they're first booking with you. And I mean, you're, you're just collecting emails. Like there's, I don't know. I guess, I guess I see yeah. both. I see it both ways. Do you get a lot of repeat people from that list? And, and this is entirely anecdotal. I have no hard evidence, no research to kind of back this up, but I have never stayed at an Airbnb more than once. I've never, I don't think I've, maybe I've stayed in a hotel twice, maybe, but like generally speaking, I don't yeah. stay at the same hotels. I don't stay at the same Airbnbs. I, I generally don't even go back to the same vacation locations all that much. So I'm curious what you have yeah. for repeat, repeat business. It's usually not the same property that they're staying at, but we are, I forgot what the number is, man. I'll have to look, but we are seeing, like, usually we see an uptick in our bookings. It could be a random Wednesday. If we push out that email, we do see an uptick in our bookings. If we push out an email like that, it's usually just a different property, same market, but different property. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. 
Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. Let's say somebody stays in your property, they go onto the Wi-Fi, they put in their email, you start marketing to them. When they book now to stay with you again, do they book direct or do they go to Airbnb and book that property through Airbnb? So right now it's Airbnb, but we are literally, we're uh, Boostly is the company I'm plugging them. But Boostly is a company out of the UK that builds these direct booking websites out for relatively cheap compared to what they can do. But like you have to, what I've told everyone in the last couple of years, because it's already happening with the current correction we're going through is you need to be, even if you have one property, you need to look at your property as a hospitality business. You don't have an Airbnb business. You don't have a vacation rental business. You have a hospitality business. That's, that's what you're running. Taking that line of thinking, all of the hotels, I mean, you can book on booking.com, Expedia, whatever, but they have their own personal booking sites that they push guests towards. It's the same idea, just on a very small scale compared to like Marriott or something. How have your construction costs and interest rates been impacted from 
and all your development projects been impacted by everything that's going on right now with construction costs going through the roof, labor going through the roof, interest rates, et cetera? I mean, we definitely had to renegotiate because we did have two budgets that were caught in the middle of COVID, like budgets that were done prior to COVID and then they were getting developed during COVID. We had to renegotiate with the bank with that, just essentially refinancing the loans to borrow more money. So that was number one. I mean, they refinanced and they were comfortable with the, instead of getting a debt service coverage ratio of four, it was like 2.2 or 2.5. Like it was still a good number. That's a big change though. Yeah. Huge change. Huge change. It's almost cut in half. Compared to what they're, yeah. I mean, at that, I mean, you look at lumber prices and uh, things are getting better for sure. Like we're having tradespeople calling us compared to the other way around. Like work is getting scarcer with the custom home building. So that, that, that's why it's found become easier to find people in the last like three, four months. Ever since June, ever since the interest rate started going up, it started to come easier. But when it comes to interest rates, I mean, you can't stop that, right? And I just wrote a bigger pockets article about this is like, you should not, no matter what the interest rates are doing, you should underwrite a deal. Do not discount real estate investing or whatever business you're in. Do not discount it completely just because we're going through a correction right now. The number one thing to do is just avoid the news completely and just underwrite your deals. Put your deals through the ringer and see if they'll still cash flow at an 8% interest rate. That's what we did. We just got seven cabins under contract that our interest rate's probably going to be pretty close to seven and a half, eight percent And the numbers still worked at that point. And this is what I've been telling everyone because it's easier said than done. But imagine where you're going to be at if you can make that cash, if you can make that property cash flow in this invest in this lending environment. Because two years down the road, whatever, eight, 18 months down the road, 12 months down the road, whatever that time frame is, when interest rates start to drop again, you're going to be able to refinance out of that loan. And then imagine what position you're going to be in if you already, if you can only make it, if you can already make it cash flow now, imagine the position you're going to be in when you can make it cash flow and refinance out of that loan. You have a pretty big goal of building 650 cabins in the next three years. One, are you having to kind of tweak that a little bit because of these construction costs, interest rates, the environment that we're experiencing? And then two, how are you going to make that happen? Yeah. What does the roadmap look like? Yeah. So what I've tweaked is not necessarily the number, it's the type of units. What I want to get into, I mean, we're already getting into it next year is not stepping away from the cabins, but I'm, we're all in the same market right now. Like all my properties are in the same market. I would love to develop a couple boutique hotels of like anywhere between 20 to 40 units per, like some themed unique boutique hotels is probably the next step to get to that 650 number. Why are you focused on the unit number specifically? Like why, why does units count for me? Isn't, isn't it just the dollar amount? Like let's, let's say you can make the same amount of money with 500 cabins as you can 650. Why do you care about 650? Why not 350, 550? It's about, it's about 30 million in gross a year. And that's a big number, but that's before investor splits or any, any of that. That's just a top line number. I have some pretty lofty goals on the personal side when it comes to, um, I didn't mean to get into this in the podcast, but in terms of like where my wife and I are putting together like a, like a nonprofit, a 501c3 to help with some stuff that some causes that we believe in. And we want to donate pretty aggressively to those causes. So that's, that's the big why over everything that I'm doing. Do you read Vivid Vision? Is that part of it? I have not, no, but I'm going to write that down. Is that a book? Yeah, it's a book from, from, and I, I know you write for Bigger Pockets, and Brandon Turner is like the almost the spokesperson for Vivid Vision. I know he, he loves that, that book and he talks about it a lot. Yeah, Brandon Turner. Yeah, I've never heard of it before. But yeah, no, Brand, I ran into Brandon Turner at the Bigger Pockets event last year, like in the bathroom. I was like, oh, hello. Like, <laughs> so, what, what mistakes have you made in your real estate career? 
And what are some of the common mistakes? You said you coach people. What are the common mistakes you see people making with short-term rentals or their development? I hate to use the word fire, but transitioning a GC off of a project that's not making their timelines or their budgets. It is an easier band-aid to rip off to do it. It's easier to do it upfront than having that like snowball. One, two mistakes are fine, but if you're going over by like 15, 20 grand on specific things, if timelines are consistently not being made, you need to transition that GC. And it might be a little difficult if that is the only person that will work on that project. But I'll tell you right now, if you're investing in this lending environment and in this economy, it'll, it'll be easier to find a GC right now. So that's the biggest thing is I sort of held on to a GC for like six to eight months that when work was barely getting done, just because he was a really good friend of mine. And that, that I wish I would have separated that because it, it, in the long run, it cost me like hundreds of thousands of dollars to wait on that person. What do you wish you had known about short-term rentals and real estate development back when you were getting started? What could you have known that would have really helped you scale faster, be more profitable, and really avoid any of the mistakes that you've made? So not necessarily the mis- uh, two things. To, to avoid the mistakes, just getting a high-level mentor, which I have in my life right now, that ha- he lives and breathes real estate development. And I'll plug him. Greg Dickerson is one of the best mentors out there for that if you guys are looking to get into high level. He mainly does multifamily development, but it's all the same in my eyes in terms of like landmines to avoid and stuff. And then the second thing was, I wish I knew how to raise capital the way I do now. Because if I was able to raise capital when I first started compared to what I know now with the development piece, I mean, that, that is one thing that I could have skilled. Like I could have skilled way faster. Because those first couple of years were just me, just like my wife and I's, like, in, like we were getting qualified for loans based on our income. So, how are you raising capital? Yeah. So the yeah, man, you open up the open up the box. Uh, the I had fastest, to I had to jump in. I know, man. The fastest way I did it. So outside of friends and family, that that's the easy button. But if you're trying to raise an aggressive number, like we over raised, but we raised five million in three months at the beginning of this year, and the way I did that was actually getting on like podcast like this, similar to this, but mainly real estate and multifamily like apartment podcast. And the the host knew that I was going to be plugging that I'm raising capital for deals and making the trans having people who were the listeners of those multifamily podcasts and making the transition from multifamily to short term rentals was relatively easy. I was pushing them towards my uh, investing site. And they were just self accrediting and sending their information through my website. And then they would just get a phone call from someone from my team. And it was, it was, some people were like, okay, I have a hundred grand. Some people say 50 grand, but like some people were coming at us with like a million, million and a half. And I, I know it's like, some people say you don't want that big investor to own a big portion of the fund. But yeah, that's, that's how I did it originally. It was just mainly getting on. And it, these weren't massive podcasts. I did get on some pretty, pretty big multifamily ones, but raising through podcasts, like on real estate podcasts was one of the easiest. It was one of the easiest things that I had done surprisingly. Cause I, I didn't, originally I didn't think it was going to be that easy. What structure are you using when you're raising? Are you doing funds? Are you doing 506B, 506C? Like how are you structuring that? What we did originally was joint ventures just with what I had mentioned, like the million dollar one. We had done joint ventures with all the, the bigger people. And then all the smaller people, I'd actually done one of those podcasts where the host after we were done actually pitched his fund to me where I would be the deal finder and I would be the operator. And then he would use his fund and his contacts and his investors. To fund the deals I was working on, I'm working with a syndicate. I'm working with two syndication funds, one out of Michigan and one out of New Orleans. That's all I am now is the the operator and the deal finder, and I put the deals together and manage the people. I get a portion of the joint partnership or the 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 GP, the general partnership, 
and then the investors own everything else. They bring everything to the table and we have guarantors that w- as well that have their own equity splits and stuff. And every deal is different. We tried to shoot for like a 6% pref, but every deal is different. How'd you get involved with those two funds? If somebody's listening and they're like, that's exactly what I need. I have a little bit of experience. I've done some deals. Yeah. I need somebody else to kind of bring that, that capital. How do I get involved with a syndication fund? Like I said, get on these podcasts and pitch yourself to these funds after. Because a, a lot of these podcasts that you're hopping on, they have funds. That's one of the reasons why the podcast exists is to pitch the fund, which everyone knows that. But that specific one that I'm working with now, it was just a conversation we had. It was like, are you looking for more deals? Are you looking for more capital? And then another thing is, I mean, if you already have those relationships with some of these fund managers, you can just ask them. Because at the end of the day, it's just real estate. It's just numbers at the end of the day. Different operations, but it's just numbers at the end of the day. It's underwritten. It's underwritten really similarly. Alex, as we wrap up the show, I want to give you a, a chance to tell the audience where they can go to connect with you, learn more a little bit about your cabins, kind of what you're working on. I have my free YouTube channel that you guys can check out. It's called Alex Builds, where I just document all everything that I'm going th- uh, like with my properties, going through with my properties. We're starting to do more on-site stuff, which is really fun, but I go everything from development to management tools, everything that you guys need to run your own business. And then I recently put together a short-term rental development course that I essentially put... You had asked like all the mistakes that I made, like what I wish I knew. I wish I would have had this course when I first started. That's essentially the course I created. And that's going to be at my personal site, which is alexjarbo.com. You guys just click the button at the top right corner and it'll take you through the whole like sales video thing. But yeah, between that and the YouTube channel, you guys can check out the Bigger Pockets articles I write. I'm pretty, pretty active in the community there, like with the comments and stuff. Awesome. I'll be sure to put a link to your resources in the show notes below for anybody that's interested in, in checking them out and connecting with you. Alex, thanks for joining. I appreciate it, man. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.